Hello, my name is Dylan C, and welcome to episode 16 of the Night Reader Podcast, a show of inspiration, art, literature, storytelling, humanity, and so much more. I've been overwhelmed by the listens and response to my first 15 episodes. Thank you all so very much. And very quickly, I'd like to say thank you uh, for the well wishes, um, birthday wishes, and the support and love you all show me. Thank you. Please continue to support the show and my journey to publication. Follow me on Instagram and Facebook. Join me on Patreon. Buy some cool Night Reader merch. Subscribe to me. Leave me reviews. Share me with your friends and the readers in your life. This past year has been such a blessing to me, and I finally planted my many seeds. And now I see the small sprouts emerging as I eagerly water them. You listeners of the sunlight that shines on my saplings. To everyone or anyone who has interacted with me, sent art, shouted me out, or even listened to the show, thank you from the bottom of my heart. I'm incredibly excited to bring back Moby Dick Comes Alive, and with such a big bang, and may I just say that I'm so deeply proud to have the opportunity to do this. Though it is self-imposed, the reaction to it has been so heartwarming. When I started this a year ago, I prayed and hoped that just one person would come along with me on this ride. To know now that thousands of people are joining me on this journey, and that I've achieved my goal of inspiring others to read this wonderful, wonderful novel, it just brings tears to my eyes. Thank you so much for being here, Knights. And if I may, I'd like to thank Lori W. for her incredible kindness and feedback, as well as Nancy and 15 Degrees Studio. I have a lot more thank yous and shout outs, but I need to save them for another episode of uh, the next Your Favorite Reads. I would like to say, though, that the best podcast application out there is CastBox. They have it for Android or iPhone. You can find everything on there, all the big names, all the indie shows. Uh, Night Reader's on there, of course, and it's my favorite app. It's the one I use. It's my go-to. So I'm dedicated to it. Um, and just have a really great a really great app. You can download everything you need, and it just saves it in there in your cache. Uh, so it's really cool. So I highly, highly recommend CastBox. It's the way to go for all your podcast listening. I'd also like to share with you guys that if you did not know already, if you know from software, the game developer company, um, they, create a, they created a franchise called Dark Souls. It started off as Demon Souls, then Dark Souls, and it branched out to other games called Bloodborne and Sekiro. Um, they're some of my favorite games of all time, and I was heavily, heavily inspired by the voice acting in those games uh, to create this show. And a lot of the voice acting I do for Moby Dick here is um, directly influenced by my experience with Dark Souls. Um, Another quick little insight on some music that I enjoy. Um, I enjoy a lot of different kinds of music, but uh, I really love pop punk. Bands like Real Friends, Knuckle Puck, uh, The Story So Far, New Found Glory. Um, I love classic rock, like, you know, progressive, like Genesis and Yes. And I grew up on uh, metal bands like Suicide Silence, um, Whitechapel, when I was younger, uh, Under Oath, The Used, like emo kind of stuff. Uh, so a little bit of everything, really. And um, I love Justin Bieber's new album. It's awesome. Stuff like that. Just a little insights into me. If you guys want to know more about me in the future, let me know in the comments and I'll share more. We're finishing Moby Dick this spring, and I'm sending this show into overdrive. This year, what can you expect from Night Reader? 
I'm chipling down on the episodes, publishing a few books, working on some stories, working with artists on different projects, hopefully doing some traveling. You can expect all the inspiration and love I've always had present in my show. Selfless love and promotion for artists, readers, writers, and everyone, basically. My goal, as you all know, is to inspire and influence many in the best way that I can. It's so central to me to help youth get past the apprehensions of creating their art. I know we all have something beautiful inside of us that I want to see emerge. This is what makes me happy, what helps me flourish. I too have my dreams that I'm working on and I hope come to pass. But to influence someone's life in a positive way, that is a true dream to me, dream come true. And with your help, I have began to achieve this. Again, thank you for listening. Like I said, Moby Dick is back and better than ever. I'll continue to produce your favorite Reads episodes, which have been very successful for my show. And your feedback has been so positive of my writings and guests. So, much more of everything you have come to know. Nothing will stop me from this venture. After Moby Dick, more classics will come to life. As I continue to grow, it becomes increasingly difficult to keep up with my many connections. And it really got me down for a while. But I've accepted that I'm only one man, and I will do my best in all that I can. Just know that if we have connected at all, I won't forget it. And if I have ever made you a promise or given you my word, I will follow through. The Harry Potter contest was so much fun. Thank you to the artists and winners and all that. And one more thing before we get started. I do have a goal starting this first week of March, and that is to gain one patron or sell one piece of merch a week. I need your guys' help with this. So, the place to follow me is Instagram, at Night Reader Podcast. That's my biggest social page. It's where I do everything I show. You can get behind-the-scenes looks at what I do, my day-to-day life, my readings, uh, my teachings, all that stuff. Facebook's great as well, like I'm Night Reader. But Instagram is really where, where I, I do my, my job there. And there in the link in my bio is where you can find the link to all my stuff. My patron page, my merchandise, my PayPal, my website, all that stuff. So Instagram, please, please go follow me on Instagram at Night Reader Podcast. And help me. Go buy a piece of merch, even if it's just 12 I got $12 merchandise. I got a... Anywhere from about $12 to about $40, from sweaters to mugs, um, all original art, all really cool stuff. So I would just love if you guys would go check out my merch shop. Uh, That's on Teespring. If you go to teespring.com, search up Night Reader, uh, you'll find that. So um, without further ado and all that nonsense out of the way, uh, let's dive back in. In my last Moby Dick episode, you'll remember the fantastic scene that was set aboard the Pequod. We've been introduced to the main cast and a plethora of side characters, gotten very close with the main characters, fleshed out Herman Melville's ideas and personality. As you know, I feel Herman a very close friend. You may have heard so in my ode to him. I've written a few pieces for him and dedicated towards him. I feel him a close friend, as well as his character Ishmael, who I believe to be Herman in actuality. We're moving through an interesting portion of the book right now where the point of view seems to change from first person or being in Ishmael's head to third person. Sometimes the book drops into a play sort of style with stage directions and different characters speaking and the view being described as if we were looking down upon the sailors. But right here, right now, the point of view 
actually switches into Ahab's head for the first time. This is highly interesting because not only is it a rarity of writing to switch points of view like this, but it's so intriguing to see the different personalities shine through and how greatly they are defined and different from one another. I have spoken about who you think the antagonist might be in this story, and we all know this is not your average sailor's tale. We might see Mighty Ahab as the bad guy. We might see Moby Dick, the whale, as the bad character. Some say this is a story of a man versus nature. Tragedy. What happens when you try to change something as concrete as nature, the world? From our last episode, we know Ahab does not abide by normal rules of humanity. He believes he could strike the sun if it looked at him wrong. He would die on that pedestal. He will write his own story, despite where the winds blow him. He is pure willpower and might, and we see how it affects the rest of the crew. But keep this tidbit in mind. Some people believe Ishmael is indeed Herman Melville. That's my personal belief. Some say that Ahab and Ishmael are both Herman Melville, different sides of him, light and dark, good and evil. That's an interesting play on things because it peers into humanity and how there is good and bad in all of us, something we see in Ahab. I'm not opposed to this and I think in some ways it is true, although Ahab's terrible ways are definitely magnified for a dramatic effect. Now, Ishmael, as we have spoken of, is a great and kind man. He's much more observative and more of a reader than a writer when it comes to the viewing of the world. He has a great sense of purpose, perception, and understanding of his brethren. His gut feelings have proven right time and time again. And though he was sucked into this journey, partly by his own will, he feels this overbearing sense of dread. And rightfully so. We've all just been signed on for a deathly journey of hunting a whale endlessly. And although we see humanity in the leader, we also see a creeping and a scary insanity right behind his eyes that he isn't even truly aware of. He is controlling what he can, and as more and more slips from his grasp, his insanity shines through even more. Is there humanity in his soul, or has he lost it all in his furious attempts at revenge? Well, as Ahab leaves the crew on deck for an hour after midnight, and their ceremony comes to a close, we jump into Ahab's head and hear in his tangled words what he is feeling and thinking at the moment. The crew is under the impression that Ahab might be at loss of control of his emotions and not aware of how he's affecting everybody. But we learn here that he is very much aware. Let's take a look. Chapter 37, Sunset. We see Ahab alone in his cabin by the back window. Staring out, we learn earlier in the story that Ahab enjoys warm weather and it helps him feel better in his pains. His thoughts and words are incredibly poetic, and it's truly beautiful and tragic, just incredible. I'm gonna share you my perceptions with you and uh, explain it to my understanding. It seems that he speaks to himself, so let's take a listen. I live a white and turbid wake, pale waters, pale cheeks, wherever I sail. This lovely light, it lights not me, 
They think me mad. Starbuck. I am madness, madded. The prophecy was that I should be dismembered. And I, I lost his leg. I now prophesize that I will dismember my dismemberer. Now then, be the prophet and the fulfiller one. Nothing is my obstacle. Right. But what's he saying? Well, Ahab, a philosophical man of beautiful and dark language, clearly. All that he passes and leaves behind, he leaves his mark behind him. The wind blows alongside him, enviously, but he passes first, not the wind. He floats small in this gigantic globe, and how beautiful it is. His soul is preparing itself for something big. He asks the question, is the crown too heavy that I wear? This iron crown of Lombardy. Now the reference of crown wearing and kingliness is very important. The crew describes Ahab as having a dark sultanism about himself. We know this. And in my early episodes, we heard a lot of the typology in this story the religious connections and metaphors. This book resonates deeply with many of these aspects. We hear about Jonah and the whale. We hear about Ahab's name and its connection to religious texts. If you remember correctly, Ahab was the name of a religious king and a bad one who led his people to destruction. And so, with this theme of kingliness and a crown, it's an amazing way of connecting themes Truly brilliant, Herman. The sort of brilliance that simultaneously melts and ignites my soul. Anyway, as for the reference, the Iron Crown of Lombardy. Well, Ahab says it is the crown that he wears. The crown he's speaking of is a certain kind of crown that was used for the coming of age celebration of Holy Roman Emperors. These crowns were said to hold a single nail from the cross. Why is this important? Well, it holds the themes heavily and very well. We also get a sense of a crown of thorns, so to speak. And that goes without explanation, right? We know the analogy of a crown of thorns, and further, Ahab tells us his crown may be too heavy for him to bear. He also says that it is bright, with many gems upon it. But since he wears it, he cannot see its beauty. He feels only the heavy weight of the metal, which he specifically says is iron and not gold. Does he feel he's not worthy of a gold crown? How self-aware is Ahab? Not only this, but the edge of his crown is jagged and digs into him, painting him constantly, so much so that he feels his brain is rubbing against the steel and his skull becomes hardened. And hard-headed is he, no doubt. 
we need to also understand that Ahab speaks in very high-formed metaphors. So obviously, as you know, there is no crown. But this language gives us fantastic insight into his mind and the themes of the story. That is why I'll explain them for us. So, a crown. Is this Ahab speaking about his duty as a, quote, king of this vessel, unquote? He is lord and commander here at the sea, and he has the weight of many lives on his hands. Not only that, but the weight of his revenge constantly crushing him. He's feeling in a vague way that is all too much for him, but we know Ahab will not give in to any man or element, and yet he is surrounded by the elements. It seems Ahab can no longer enjoy the sun either. He uses the words, quote, damned in the midst of paradise, unquote. Perfect way to describe it, right? Next, Ahab does some more comparing of himself and other objects, calling himself a cogged circle that fits respectively in every sailor's, quote, wheel, making them revolve. Yes, he is the master in command, and in saying this, he knows he moves these men not just physically, but spiritually and mentally as well. He calls the men many anthills of gunpowder, and says that he stands before them with a match. He knows his power, and in this instance, is he realizing his control of all their destinies? He says he dislikes that he has to ignite these men, because he has to waste his own match. More deep metaphors that I'm sure you can make out for yourself. Some self-awareness shines through, absolutely. Ahab calls himself madness maddened, the words of a true madman. He lets it be known to the reader that he's aware of Starbuck's feelings towards him, despite his indifference up on deck. He then references the prophecy. We know he's speaking of an event that was not in this story, in which Elijah, the street prophet that confronted Ishmael and Queequeg in the beginning of our story, warned Ahab that he would lose his leg at some point. And it's come true. Well, Ahab feels it's time to prophesize for himself, and he believes that he will dismember the dismemberer. This powerful and twisted way of thinking is madness. To call back to a main theme, divine intervention, or predetermined destiny, how much control do we truly have? And does it have to do with sheer willpower? What's set in stone? Is your story already written? It's these things that I mull over in my mind in the night as I sit here in the keep. Thank you for the meal, Melville. It also seems that Ahab is directly challenging nature. Moby Dick, the forces and powers that be. God, a higher power, whatever it may be. But there is something more powerful than he. And he definitely has the whale in his mind while he speaks this. And a small portion that I just absolutely adore. Melville's madness in Ahab is profoundly expressed here. I'd like to take a look at a little lower layer. Now at the end of the chapter, he compares himself to a schoolboy being bullied by someone much bigger, the whale. But he says he will not say the standard, pick on someone your own size. No, he's been knocked down, but the big bully has run and hidden. From behind your smoke screen, 
I have no long rifle to reach you. In fact, take the first swing. Go ahead. Swerve me. Avoid me. Best me. I dare you to. Swerve me. The path to my destiny is laid in smooth iron rails where my soul is grooved to run over unsounded gorges through the depths of mountains under the ocean's wrath unflinching I rush nothing is an obstacle to me the path is set sure he raises a fist in the face of life and death how completely fixed he is on his goal we know nothing could stop him at this point or is there something that could swerve him Well, we have not yet heard the story of how Ahab lost his leg, and we'll hear it soon. Ahab says that he was gifted with a high perception, or maybe you could say he believes he's highly intelligent, more so than others, so much so that he cannot enjoy the simple things in life. And so the sun sets on Ahab, shining orange light on all but him, damned in the midst of paradise. And so, good night. He waves a hand to the window. A small afterthought I'd like to share with you. Did you notice the industrial overtones? Maybe this is just a coincidence, but I don't think I've ever heard anyone talk about this before. Even the very last words in the chapter are the iron way. When he's speaking of the metaphorical railway, his soul is running along. The iron way. From Melville's mind, this could have been a small coincidence or he could be making references to further industrialization of America and the rest of the world, as he does sometimes write about that sort of thing. And this book absolutely has overtones of nature being turned into a commodity, hence the whaling voyage itself. I think this could be important thing to talk about while you read this portion. Keep in mind, at least. It is dusk. Ahab is now in restless sleep, and the Pequot falls into darkness. Starbuck leads against the main mast. This is not long after his run-in with Ahab. As night approaches, Starbuck stands in the wind, stuck in his thoughts. He laments about what just happened with him and the crew. If you recall, when we first met Starbuck in the Knights and Squires episode, we learned a lot about him. Though many of his details are not set in stone, but rather hinted at. We know he's a brave and honest man, possibly with a family back home, and he's very aware of dangers at sea. He's never in his life had his spirit taken out of him the way that it just was. Ahab's called him out. Now this is a gorgeous and tiny little chapter here that I implore you to read for its incredible poetics. It seems to be the continuation of the prayer Starbuck began earlier. We'll hear it from him, and I'll put it into my words of my understanding. My soul is more than matched. She's overmanned, overrun. I am mad, mad. This is a pain that is too extreme to bear. The fact that his hands grasp my heart. He has drilled down deep, blasted the reason out of me. 
I think I see his unholy death, but I feel I must help him reach it. Will I? This indescribable thing has tied me to him. With a strong cable, I have no knife to cut. Horrible old man. Who is over him, he cries. I. He would be a Democrat to all above. Look how he lords over all below. Oh, I plainly see my miserable place. To obey, rebelling, and worse yet, to hate with touch of pity. For in his eyes I read some vivid pain that if I had it would surely kill. Yet is there hope? Ugh. Time and tide flow wide. The hated whale has the round watery world to swim in as the small goldfish has its glassy globe. I would up and leave with my heart not heavy as lead. My clock is running out. My heart is the all-controlling weight. I have no key to lift again. Oh God, to sail with such a heathenish crew. Such a small touch of humanity in them, thrown out here by the sharkish sea. The white whale is their devil, whose name we shall not speak. Just listen. Peace. Oh, life. It is an hour such as this, with my soul beat down and held to knowledge. Oh, life. That feeling is overbearing. My death awaits. But this horror, it is unlike me. And with what small, soft feeling of humanity left in me, I fight you, O oh, grim phantom visions of the future. Stand by me. Hold me, bind me, O oh, ye blessed influences. Poor Starbuck, a strong man but stuck at sea with these terrible feelings. He wants to see his family again. He wants to live. It seems all around him are primal beasts who could care less. Just along for the ride. He wonders if he is the only one with his head about him here. And it's quite possible. Above the Pequod, we move over to the crew during night watch. As a terrible storm is brewing. The crew works and banter with one another about the whale and the weather. As I mentioned, this portion of the book is written in a play-like format, with the dialogue switching from sailor to sailor. The reason for doing this, I believe, is possibly because Melville imagined his work being turned into a play, and he predicted correctly. But more importantly, this is an awesome look at how Herman Melville's worldly knowledge, something I've mentioned before quite a few times here, is ever-present. The Pequod is a melting pot of sailors from different backgrounds and cultures. And as each one speaks, we catch glimpses of cultural and societal differences between them all. It's an amazing and interesting portion. It's really quite clever and even humorous to read at times. As I said, it points to Herman Melville's true knowledge of his brothers and proves his traveled lifestyle. It could be said that some stereotypes are used here, and that may be a viable argument. Well, we first hear from second mate Stubb as he's mending a brace on the foretop. He speaks to himself in a light-hearted tone, as always, about what he has just witnessed between Ahab and the crew. 
It's amazing to see the vast difference in character and attitude here. We see Stubb as an efficient yet generally carefree type of guy, often whistling tunes while in grave danger. But he is not foolish. Here he speaks, and we hear a very popular line from the book that's often quoted. I cannot help but laugh, why? Because a laugh is the wisest and easiest answer to all that is odd in the world. Come what will, one comfort is always left in me. The unfailing comfort of laughter. <laughs> I did not hear all of what Ahab said to Starbuck, but from what I could see, Starbuck's soul has been diminished. The old man has surely gotten into his brain. I knew it would happen too. Well, Stubb. Why, Stubb? That's my title. What of it, Stubb? Maybe I will die on this voyage. I know not all that may be coming, but be what it will, I'll go to it laughing. Such an odd, horrible feeling lurks in all of this. I feel funny. Huh. Wonder what my little wife at home is doing now. Crying her eyes out? Maybe giving a party to the newly arrived mariners. And happily. Well, I'm happy as well. Oh, we'll drink tonight with hearts as light, till love is gay and fleeting, as bubbles that swim on the breakers bim and break the lips while mating. Oh, a brave song, that one there. Who's that who calls? Mr. Starbuck? Aye, aye. Coming. Just through with this job. Coming. Classic Stubb. Uh, cool little fact here, the lines that Stubb sang are from a poem called Sparkling and Bright by Charles Hoffman, a friend of Melville's who apparently went insane before Moby Dick was released. Here we see Stubb playfully speculating about what's going on around him. It is midnight now in the forecastle. The harpooners and sailors stand, lean, and lounge in various places, all singing and bantering along with one another. Remember, there are some very cool jokes that Melville makes here. Smart cultural jokes and references by each individual sailor of a different background. I'll point them out after the scene. snoozing tonight, matey. Fat night for that. I've marked this in our old mogul's wine. It's quite deadening to some as filliping to others. We sing, they sleep. Aye, aye down there. Adam again. There, tell them to a vast dreaming of their lasses back home. You, Frenchie, take this copper pump.
Uh, boys, let's have a drink or two before we ride to anchor in Blanket Bay and lay our heads down. Uh, what say ye? There comes the other watch. Uh, stand by, our legs, Pip. Little Pip, where are you? Where are with the tambourine, Pip? Oh, you sing us a song, Oh, let's Pip. have a drink. Come on, play it. I... I don't know where it is. I'm quite sleepy. Oi, Pip, beat thy belly then. Wag thy ears, jig it, man, I say. We must dance for merry as the word. Throw yourselves. Legs, legs. How about you, my Icelandic fellow? I don't like your floors, matey. Too springy for my taste. I'm used to ice floors. I'm sorry to throw cold water on the subject. But excuse me. Me too. Where's your girls? Who but a fool would shake his own hand and say to himself, how do you do? We need partners. Dancing partners. Here you are, Pip, your tambourine. Oh, up your mouth now. Go it, Pip. Go it. Bang it, bellboy. Make fireflies. Break the jinglers. Jinglers, you say? Ah, there goes another. Dropped off, I pound it so. Rattle my teeth there. Pound away. Make a pagoda of thyself. Merry man, hold up thy hoop so I can jump through. Oh, that's the white man for you. He calls that fun. <laughs> I save my sweat. I don't see the old man dancing. I wonder what those jolly lads think at all. What they're dancing about. Uh, I'll dance over your graves, I will. You are as green as green can be. Well, enjoy yourselves, lads. Dance on, you're young. I was once. Oi, the wind is rising. It'll be down sail soon. Wind is rising, storm. Blood, that old man's a grand cove. We are the lads to hunt him up his whale. I heard him say that to kill a storm, you must go headlong into it. Ride. All the three pine masts shake. Pine trees are the hardest to keep alive and transplant into a different soil. And here there is no soil other than the crew's cursed clay. Steady, helmsman. Steady. Now, this is the sort of weather that would brace hearts, snap ashore, and keel hull split at sea. Our captain has his birthmark. Look, younger boys. There is another in the sky. All else, pitch black. What of that? Who's afraid of black is afraid of me. What's that I saw? Lightning? Yes, lightning, lightning. lightning. The squall. No, it's not lightning, that's Dagu's teeth. I'll swallow yours, that mannequin. White skin, white liver. Well, big frame, small spirit. Fight! Fight! Fight him! Yo, get him! Fight 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 him! Fight
Lord help us. Chris crash. There goes the jib stay. Laying away. God. I must duck lower. It's worse than being in the world woods and who'd go climbing for chestnuts now. But there they go, all cursing, and here I don't. Fine for They're on the road to heaven. But these white chaps are worse yet. There, your white storms. White storm, white whale. Here, I've heard all the talk about the white whale. It makes me jingle all over like my tambourine. And a condor of an old man swarm in to hunt it. Ah. I love this somewhere in the darkness. Have mercy on this small black boy down here. Preserve him from all men. Have no bowels to feel fear. So much has been said in this portion, um, and these are all secondary characters and in my eyes are here for comedic effect, though that may be hard to see at first. Uh, it's a great way to paint the scene and sailors with realistic virtues, and as I mentioned, it hints at Herman Melville's smarts. We see the crew getting worked up and bantering with one another, some nearly fighting, arguing, and cleverly insulting each other in a very sailor-like way. All the while, a terrible black storm is rising around them in the night. A very young man of most likely ages 17 to 20, named Pip, you may remember a mention of him slightly earlier in the novel. Black Pip, as he is called by the crew, along with a bunch of other names like that. Young black man who's a sensible sailor, but terribly frightful, and considered to be a coward by the rest of the crew. His job aboard the Pequod is often boiled down to entertaining the rest of the crew with his songs and his tambourine. He's a good guy, but clearly thrust into terrible situations that his mind can't handle. What will occur to this young man is truly heartbreaking and moving. But for now, we're learning about his character and how he's reacting to Ahab and the storm. Him, Dagu, and Tashigo are the only main characters mentioned here. Dagu, the tall and dark harpooner, and Tashigo, the sleek Indian harpooner. One of the best parts of this chapter is the playful way the crew talks to each other. We see Dagu almost get in a fight with a Spaniard, and Tashigo speaking about how he won't waste his sweat. Now a great example of this playfulness is the way the Icelandic sailor is refusing to dance, saying that the wood floor is too springy, that he prefers dancing on ice floors. And his comment about throwing cold water on the subject is brilliant. The Chinese sailor tells Pip to rattle thy teeth, dance and make a pagoda of himself. If you do not know, a pagoda is a multi-tiered tower building prominent in ancient Asia, often having religious functions. I suppose a sailor is telling Pip to stand up tall or possibly sing and become holy through this action. We then hear Tashigo, the long-haired Indian, commenting 
while taking a wise smoke, calling the white man foolish, saying that he saves his sweat. He points to the old mad sailor, who comments about the young sailor's foolishness and youthfulness. He also makes a very deep and poetic reference, referring to the three masts of the ship as pine trees, how they shake and how unsteady here they are. He then comments on the rising storm, pointing out how deeply frightening it is, especially its peculiar blackness. Dagu chimes in then, slightly offended at the comment. There's a sudden flash of white lightning and another sailor comments, saying it was only Dagu showing his white teeth. Dagu sends a sideways racial insult right back. A Spanish sailor challenges him, saying though he is large, he has a small spirit. The Spanish man brandishes a knife. The tension rises as they seem they're about to fight, with the rest of the crew egging them on, snatching the Spaniard's knife for a fair fight. Castigo silently peers on and comments about the men and the gods both fighting. The storm. Before the tension can rise any further, though, the storm hits full on, slamming the Pequod and its inhabitants with strong winds and rain, lightning striking all around. The entire crew scatters, all up in arms and shouting, as little Pip cowers beneath the windlass, crying to himself. We then hear his dialogue as he expresses his lament and terrible fear of his whereabouts and situation. It's a bit heartbreaking and alarming, and it just really makes you think about the time and society, how people can get caught up in things. The way we work for ourselves and our families and do things outside of our comfort zone, these things sometimes bring us to bad places in our minds. I would imagine Pip got pulled into this journey as most of our crew did, willingly, and yet somehow unwilling. Nobody wants this to be their last voyage. The language here, and the pure fear that comes through this passage is immense. It really helps you connect with the character and puts into perspective the dangers of sailing and whaling. A strong piece, no doubt. We've seen how Ahab affects the crew and his surroundings. So is this Ahab's doing? Do you blame him for this all? Or does everyone have their own free will? There's no concrete answer, clearly. But you may feel a rising anger towards Ahab for putting his crew through this. Or you might argue that everyone has chosen to be here. True, but in their minds, this was supposed to be a normal whaling voyage, which is full of natural dangers, but not always danger from within. It's almost as if he has this crew hostage, while this poor boy Pip along with Ishmael and the others, brave and proud in the wind, are pushing out even further into their dangerous adventure. Some hoping to find money, some looking for revenge, some looking for adventure and freedom, some seeking solace from their own minds and boredom on land, some simply letting the wind blow them where it will. Some men have families back home, some could care less if they die tomorrow. Such an immense mishmash of situations and characters. So well crafted into this novel. It's going to be incredible to see where it takes them. We have reached the title chapter of the novel, Moby Dick. It is by no means the peak of the novel, and it's absolutely incredible. We're going to learn much more about the accursed white whale, and hear about Ahab's first run-in with him, before he lost his leg. A backstory on Ahab and the Pequod, some incredibly poetic looks at the entire situation from the perspective of the original narrator, Ishmael, or Herman Melville. This chapter is slightly extensive, but very, very rewarding and informational. 
So we begin this chapter with Ishmael's voice, admitting that he had been part of the revelry out of fear in his gut. But what this be but with this being said, we'll have to wait till next week to find out what's going on in Ishmael's head and what truly happened to and what truly happened to Captain Ahab on that fateful day when he lost his leg. I'd like to thank you all so much for sticking around. If you listen to the whole episode, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. I've been putting so much into this. And yes, we are returning weekly. I am returning weekly. So next week, look out for the installment around Thursday or Friday. And every week after that. As I mentioned earlier in the episode, please, please help me. Uh, please support me in any way that you can uh, on my journey here to uh, moving up on the literary world. Literary, literary ladder. So thank you guys so much. This episode was produced, written, and created by Dylan C. Um, as I always say, I hope you guys you know find inspiration. If there's anything I can do to help you, please reach out to me. Um, and all I do is for love of literature and art and um, to inspire you, whoever you are. If you're listening to this, um, just know that I believe in you and your art. So, go ahead, drop your swords, pick up your pens and reading spectacles. Let us read on.